Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Okay, hi. I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. Today I'm going to be talking to Hoyt Hart, who is an attorney. Um, he uh, recently was the attorney for Kathy Donald, who we had, um, who we did an interview with a few weeks ago, and we got a very favorable settlement that we were happy with. Um, I think it's probably one of the only, um, I guess, what I would call successful benzodiazepine injury litigations um, that that I've heard of. And so Hoyt is going to tell us a little bit about how he got into uh, uh, med malpractice and then also talk about his experience being the lawyer for Kathy and then share information about uh, what you might want to know if um, you've been injured or harmed and you want to seek uh, uh uh, uh, damages, you know, and pursue litigation. So I'm going to turn it over to Hoyt to introduce himself and kind of dive right in. Yeah. Okay. Hello, everybody. I'm Hoyt Hart. Uh, I'm an attorney practicing in San Diego. Um, I find myself these days, uh, inundated with medical malpractice cases, uh, which are among the most difficult litigation there is. Conversely, on the defense side, especially in California, they are the easiest to defend. So the deck is kind of stacked against the patient. Um, I've been involved in complex litigation since the 80s. Uh, graduated from law school in 85. Uh, I started out my practice, uh, interestingly enough, doing real estate law. And uh, to be honest with you, that's kind of boring. Uh, but from real estate law, I got involved in uh, what we used to call inadequate security. Uh, there'd be a robbery at a shopping center and the person be injured and they'd have uh, some life altering uh, consequences because of an armed robbery or they were shot or they were injured some way. And I really enjoyed that work, um, really can help people with that. And, and um, you're able to. Uh, make the court system work in those days. Uh, and from that, I got to know uh, a number of uh, a doctor contact um, where uh, a case came to me through a, a classmate of mine where uh, a 13-year-old boy had been killed at a local pediatric specialty hospital in San Diego. And this is uh, kind of the turning point in my career. It was in the mid-90s. This patient had an autoimmune colon disease, and he would come into San Diego periodically for uh, examinations and checkups. And uh, unbeknownst to him and his family at the time, the the medical service at this particular hospital was trying to raise their billable time. And so they were, one of the things they were doing was colonoscopies on everybody they could get to lay still. And here comes this poor 13 year old with an autoimmune colon disease. And so he's got blood in his stool every time, but we know why, we knew why. Nevertheless, they uh, they ordered up a colonoscopy for him uh, and, even though he begged his mother not to let him do it, like a lot of Hispanic mothers, they they do what the doctor says. So this boy um, got the colonoscopy and sure enough, uh, uh, one aspect of uh, the autoimmune disease is that he would have friable or very fragile places in the colon. And one of those blew out. A lot of people don't realize when they do a colonoscopy on you, they inject air and blow your colon up so they can look at it. Well, his blew out, and now that's a surgical emergency. So as they wheeled him in to to repair the blown out uh, colon, they discovered that his pro time, the time it takes to clot blood, was very prolonged. He had uh, he, he had a clotting disorder that was secondary to his uh, autoimmune colon disease. And he literally could not clot blood. The surgeon 
invented several new swear words in trying to um, repair this damage, and he ultimately was unable to do it. They ended up packing uh, the boy's abdomen and tried to make him as comfortable as possible, and he bled to death in his mother's arms in that hospital. Was subject of a couple of uh, documentaries. I think ABC and NBC both uh, did one, and they were both wrong. They got the, the facts wrong. They tried to portray it as uh, unnecessary testing done, um, you know, and how, how that raises the cost of things. What they didn't realize was they were deliberately doing the unnecessary testing in order to raise their, their uh, billables. So once I got to understand that particular case, um, we, we were putting it together for a settlement conference and the head of the doctor group came in with the young uh, gastroenterologist who had just come out of his residency, came to the settlement conference with a retired federal judge. And the, the older physician who was ahead of their group um, had what my partner used to call daggers in his eyes. He was furious at us. Now, the young doctor was inconsolable. He bawled like a baby the whole time. And that case settled for the maximum $250,000 that was allowed in those days. Um, that was my first introduction to malpractice and just the dynamic of, you know, sacrificing, I mean, it's such a risk to take on a kid that's known to be that fragile. And they did it for $135. That was the charge that Medi-Cal would reimburse for a colonoscopy. Um, so after that, I, I found it almost impossible to say no to some cases. Um, well, I want to yeah. ask you that because uh, about that. One of the things that Kathy said when she was seeking help with her case was that she went to several lawyers who all said no to her. They would not take the case. And I mean, you'd obviously never seen a case of protracted withdrawal before. It was a completely, you know, it was unknown whether this would be even possible. What, why'd you take the case? Uh, because Kathy was a trained professional with a very important job. And I happen to know from personal family experience that benzodiazepine withdrawal can be problematic. And the other thing that I already knew about it is it's very patient specific. Mm -hmm. My related family member developed quite a skill at managing uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal. So I was not unfamiliar. I've never had a case like this before, mm -hmm. but I understood the, um, the science, the medicine and the patient perspective on trying to manage these. And, you know, I'm, I'm also aware of uh, some doctors are very quick to write orders for things they don't understand and create circumstances that they're not then ready to manage. And this smelled like just that kind of case. Well, it's, it's kind of like the, th you know, it, it's a thread that comes through in the other case, you know, that it's this kind of industrialized, well, what, what what I hear a lot of is this kind of production line medicine where, you know, maybe you could do something more or differently, but it's easiest to write a script because you talk to the patient, they leave, they're happy, and you kind of kick the can down the road, you know, we'll figure this out later, or maybe I'll even be gone. Um, and it's just a, a total loss of that, that genuine care, that concern, knowing the person being truly invested in helping them. And it becomes this I mean, I don't know, it's like an abomination. And I think people feel it. A lot of people these days, when I talk to them, when they go and they have these interactions with healthcare professionals, it's not all of them, but a lot of them feel that they can, they know that they're not getting the care that they would normally expect. And, and it really just lead, leads to these harms. Yeah, it's what I find uh, all the time. I mean, as I've mentioned to you before, the, the scope of my practice runs from outright fraud to simple mistakes by people who really care about what they're doing mm -hmm. and everything yeah. in between. You know, I think I've mentioned a couple of times I've sued an oncologist in Bakersfield several times and the jury keeps letting him off. Uh, 
And th this is a guy who is treating uh, a benign lung condition as though it were uh, lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of the problem that we have, particularly in California, is uh, conservative juries and jury nullification. Uh, I just had a case like that happen to me in November up in uh, Napa. I sued a nursing home for overhydrating a patient with a, a stage three cardiac condition, and they overhydrated her 14 liters. That's like 25 pounds of water fluid. And she died of a gurgling heart attack, and they didn't diurese her until the last day. Mm -hmm. I proved that case. I had top experts. It was clear they had no defense. The defense expert begged the judge to, to make me stop when I was cross-examining him. I haven't had that happen too many times. but And still, in 90 minutes, the jury defensed it. We lost that case because, you know, the jury in a lot of conservative parts of California, which that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. I think we have 58 counties uh, in, in this state, and only about uh, three of them have reliable um, jury pools. The rest are just uh, so um, uh, biased in favor of doctors that they, you know, and they think because I think they've been propagandized or raised this way. We're not doctors. We didn't go to medical school. So who are we to judge a doctor? That's one of the things that makes this work really, really difficult. Okay. So, um, I'd like I'd like to get your perspective on on, on Kathy's situation. It, maybe you could kind of tell me about what what that what the experience was like working her case and uh, and going through going through the whole thing. Well, they changed lawyers on the defense side um, twice. So there there was one firm that the main person retired and closed the firm in the middle of the case. Um, it, it's typical work. They send us discovery questions to answer. We send it out to them. We take the medical record, try to get it analyzed. Uh, now, you, you remember my partner, Kyle. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he had two or three experts look at this, and they all said, you have no case. Because wow. those are all doctors who don't understand the concept of benzodiazepine withdrawal injury. Mm -hmm. Once I got with... Um, Dr. Ashaya, who is a pulmonologist working at Cedars, he recognized this, and uh, it's a pet peeve of his that benzodiazepines are too easily ordered and, and poorly managed. So he recognized this right away. Um, and we were a go because of that. Uh, one of the things that, that came along, they, they brought a summary judgment against us, and they used the same opinion that you know, everything had been done correctly, even though we know major mistakes were made multiple times. And so to oppose that, um, Dr. Ashaya wasn't yet in the case. I had to get a, a client of mine who is a psychiatrist to look over the case, and she understood it. And uh, she wrote a great uh, uh, opposing declaration to defeat their summary judgment. So the dynamic in Kathy's case is Kyle is telling me the whole time, all these experts say we have no case. I had a sense that we had a case. And then, you know, we got uh, um, Dr. Greco, my client, to uh, uh, look the case over and explain it. And from that point on, we were in a little better shape. And then Dr. Ashaya came on towards the summer and uh, carried the case. And then, of course, once you got involved, that was uh, more or less the definitive statement of what's going on. They all knew Greco and Ashaya understood there were problems, but they weren't able to um, describe them in the way that you were. So you, your entry into the case uh, um, as we added experts um, is what really drove us over the, over the line to settle. Oh, that, that is, that is good to hear. Um, and, you know, looking when when I look back at the case, you know, I kind of think about a couple things. I mean, the one of the things that I thought they were really in trouble for, and and this is my perspective. You might have a very different one doing this for a long time. Was, you know, right there on the drug label for temazepam, it says fourteen days. You know, 
do not use this longer than 14 days. Otherwise, consult a psychiatrist. Um, and that was that was really that was really clear to me. That was where the where they where they made the mistake, you know, and that's where their documentation really didn't stand up. I mean, was that as important to you as it seems to me, or were there other things in there where you're like, this was really uh, important in in kind of um, I guess putting putting the defense in enough heat to settle where they did. The, the the issue on the defense side was they don't think there's an injury. They don't get it. They don't understand that um, benzodiazepine withdrawal is very patient specific. No two patients are the same. So they they look at the middle of the bell curve on benzodiazepine withdrawal, and they say, what's the problem? Mm-hmm. You know, most people can handle it. Therefore, there's, you know, that's it. That's the end of the story. And getting them to understand that a lot of the patients are out at the margins and can't handle it. Um, and in fact, the one that's suing you now is one of those ones that can't handle it. That's what is tougher to overcome. The, the, the dynamic on the other side is you have young, to, you know, 40-ish defense attorneys, most of whom do not understand medicine. Uh, they'll readily admit it. Uh, they, they know nothing more than what they just read in their own experts report. Uh, they can't problem solve or think their way through um, issues with medicine very easily. Some of them can. And, and you know, I, I run into those from time to time. But the problem is you've got these people who think just about the center of the bell curve what's the problem? Why won't you drop this case? And then behind these people are defense experts whose job it is to help them defeat the case. And so they slant everything in a pro-defense perspective. They don't tell the other attorneys about the people at the margins of the, of the bell curve who are having the problems. In this particular case, um, it was, uh, I forget her name, but the one who did the brain mapping and mm-hmm. um, and you in the case, really uh, explaining and bringing credibility to the claim that, uh, you know, and, and my insistence, you know, the three of us really drove it home. I had a, a number of good long arguments with defense counsel um, about why this is real and that you know, it, we had a pretty good judge. So, that, I mean, I was threatening him with that. So um, that's how we got there. I mean, it, this is brand new. Nobody, I mean, you've got these people who generally aren't inclined or capable to understand something as complicated as this, not interested in it. They work by the hour and they've got, you know, what they think are the are the experts telling them there's nothing here. That's the I mean, hard rock to move. That was, I mean, that was really, I was, I have to say I was a little, I mean, I'm, I'm shocked, but I'm not shocked. I mean, when I, when I was reading the, the um, reports from the defense's experts, uh, just about how shoddy some of the reasoning was, it was like, you know, they did a clinical interview and then they hit Kathy with like 20 different neuropsych evaluations, none of which were even anywhere near like, uh, you know, good measures to assess the kind of injury she had. They just threw tests at her, you know, which were normal because, you know, when Kathy does a test in a quiet room, she performs well because she's highly educated and intelligent. But none of them could really detect the type of injury that she was describing. You know, know, when I'm when I'm in busy environments and there's lights and sounds, I have a lot of trouble. You know, she was having problems with balance and things like that. And so they just threw whatever test there was and just said, oh, yeah, she's normal. I mean, it was. It was really, really poor. Um, You know, another thing that that helped me in this case was I have some background with brain injury cases, bad concussions. And a couple of years ago, I had a really massive traumatic uh, brain injury. And I remember things like that patient recovering um, had no memory of her childhood. And when she rode in a car, she had to wear sleeping mask because the moving the, the 
the um, roadside things moving past her would distract her and make her highly aroused. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Kathy described that same kind of problem. And so that's when I began to realize this is a brain injury. Mm -hmm. This is uh, this is not just a, a, a drug effect. This person has injured her brain somehow. And that was a kind of a turning point when I made that connection. You know, and, and the defense, they never really got that because even though we kept on talking about it in that way, they kept on saying, oh, this is withdrawal. Look here in the chart. It says that her, her tinnitus has resolved here. So it's finished. And, you know, this, this event that occurs later on, you know, this is something else. And, and yeah. so they were just thinking about this linear withdrawal and that was, um, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think that they ever really understood what was, what was going on. Well, I, mean, I guess eventually they did because then they wanted to settle on that. Either um, that or they yeah, were yeah. afraid to, to, yeah. you know, cross swords on the issue that they didn't understand and couldn't manage. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. You know, I um, think the fact that some of the defense firm was pretty young um, helped us too, because some of the older guys know that they can win no matter what the case is about if you're in the right venue. So it's it's a it's a tough business to try to make a living in. Mm -hmm. And you know, after I put after I put the comment, uh, you know, after I posted Kathy's video, um, there were some comments below saying. Well, this is all very well and good for Kathy. You know, she had the resources to fund this this litigation. But my understanding is is that that's not always the case. You know, that's kind of you and your firm. You know, funding the experts yeah. and taking it on. So I think could you just clarify that a little bit? Because I think some people came away with the idea that unless you have uh, resources, you know, you're not going to be well, able to do something like this. Yeah, resources definitely help. Mm -hmm. That's that's the dynamic you see at play between me and Kyle. Kyle's mm -hmm. more of a bean counter. You know, how much is this going to cost us to put this on? Whereas I'm more of the patient advocate. This is a good case. Let's do it. It's worth the money. Even though mm -hmm. here's a shocker. Sometimes we lose. We go to trial and we sometimes lose like the one I just lost in Napa, even though I proved that case 10 different ways. So. Uh, resources is important. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, we advance resources. Anybody who can contribute, uh, we try to get them to contribute as much as possible. Uh, in Kathy's case, she had some resources, but uh, and she contributed some. But uh, Kyle and I paid the others. It you know, just depends on who's got money to spend and willing to spend it when we get down the road. Mm -hmm. You take okay, these cases sense. not not really knowing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I knew when I took this case that uh, I had a couple of assets I could go to, uh, but they get to be expensive over time. And, uh, you know, to be able to carry all this and do all the work all the while on the if come when you're not being paid, we're not paid hourly. We have to win to pay ourselves. Uh, that's an issue. But if you've got a good case, you know, a couple of years ago, I had this great heparin induced thrombocytopenia case. Woman goes in for a mitral valve repair. She's Oriental. She's Japanese. Mm -hmm. And they have a higher incidence of heparin induced thrombocytopenia. She got that. And that causes a cascade of clotting. She ended up losing both legs, a couple of fingers. And mm -hmm. they had no money. They didn't have two dimes to run together. I mean, they were both on Social Security and, and one school retirement. So we had to make do with what we could uh, until we could get some settlement money. And then use. I ended up against six different uh, entities, six different defense firms in that case. And I was able to settle three of them for over a million and a quarter. And some of that then paid for the case to go to trial. So there's there's a lot of different options. We've we've done every way there is to do. So if you've got a good case, I wouldn't worry about the fact that you have few resources. Just cut that part out before you give it to Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good, good. And um so I know something that was helpful in Kathy's case was that she came to you within the time frame 
And I, there's, it, I think there's a statute of limitations for pursuing these in, in California. Maybe you could tell us about that in California. And I don't know if you could comment more globally on the United States. I don't know if, if you know if it's a similar thing or if you've heard anything about what that's kind of like outside of your state. Yeah, I think there are a couple of states that have a two-year statute. Most of them have a one-year statute. And in California, the one-year statute can toll if uh, uh, during the period when the physician is still attending you on any issue. It can also toll uh, when you are ignorant of what's happened. What's Say this toll mean? Uh, put it on hold. The, the statute okay. doesn't begin to run until you know that you've been malpracticed. The presumption is that you know right away, but a lot of times um, you don't know right away. You have a year to figure it out or to get to somebody who can figure it out. What we generally do is we solicit a, a chronological email from the patient, tell us your story. Then we run it past experts that we know, and then we'll follow up with more specific requests for information. And then we can figure out um, whether there's a case there or not. Mm -hmm. And what do you think are the most important things that someone needs to know if they've had one of these injuries and they and they and they want to pursue um, a lawsuit? Most important thing to know um, is to get with somebody who understands the injury, mm -hmm. because. Um, you know, 99 out of 100 lawyers in California can handle a rear-ender car accident case. You know, somebody was negligent, slammed into you, and they hurt your neck or injured your back. That's easy. Everybody understands that. But the reason most people get turned down so many times is because attorneys don't understand the injury that is benzodiazepine withdrawal. The prolonged withdrawal injury is a brain injury. Now, if they began to understand that, they might look at it a little better. So you might mm -hmm. mention that what you have is a brain injury caused by uh, negligent um, benzodiazepine withdrawal management. Brain injury is more appealing to attorneys because they think bigger numbers. Mm -hmm. So, but other, otherwise, you need to get with somebody who understands the injury uh, otherwise, you're just going to be insulted and have doors slammed on you. And I think yeah. that's what happened to Kathy. Yeah, she kept on going, though, you know, which is the, the great thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, she's determined. She's even a little bullheaded. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that helped her, which in turn helps the, the whole process here for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She kind of paved the way. Um, and, um, and, you know, hopefully the, the series I've done with Kathy and, and you kind of inspires other people to be bullheaded as well and to, to kind of push because some of these cases, I, I think they can be won. And, I'm, and I mean, I'm really deep into the guidelines now on, um, you, you know, because not all of the benzodiazepines have this warning, you know, 15 days. Some of them say, you know, you know short period of time or it's more vague. And I also think in the future to win these cases, it's going to be really important to understand all of the guidelines about how they're directing physicians to to prescribe and manage these cases. And 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 I think, you know, the majority of the ones I've come across, I mean, they're all saying the same thing, shortest possible time, you know, get them off as, as soon as possible if it's for insomnia, yeah. do psychological means. And I think you could use all of that even without something in a label, uh, a, a label as clear as the one was for temazepam to, to say, you know, this person was really prescribing this medication negligently and against yeah. the recommendations of all of the major guidelines. Yeah, guidelines are very helpful in my business. Mm -hmm. That's um, I, I use guidelines heavily when I'm deposing uh, defendant doctors, um, you know, asking them, what was your assessment of the patient? What did you what plan did you come up with for treating the patient? And then what did you do? And invariably, they never even consider looking at a guideline and they will have left out important elements of the guideline. Yeah. So, I mean, and you, you can get those guidelines online, just Google the guideline you're looking for and they'll, they'll mm -hmm. come up. Yeah. No, it didn't used to be that easy. Yeah. 
We used to have to really work at figuring out these cases, but now uh, with the internet the way it is, you can get a lot of information fast. Mm -hmm. um, well, great. I'm, you know, Hoyt, I, how, how much money can people make if they're successful in, in, in one of these cases? What, what determines that? Because I know there's like state caps and different things, and maybe you could talk a little sure. bit about what someone could expect if they if they succeed. The law has just changed in California. Whereas since 1975, we had been limited to $250,000 in general damages. Uh, just so you understand the difference between general and special damages, special damages are like medical bills and future costs. What you can count up on a 10 key, that's special damages. General damages are your pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what's going to be the change in your quality of life going forward? So the law just changed in California. It's now a 350 and it's going to go up, I think, 50 grand every year for a while. Um, and death cases are half a million. The, um, the other good thing that's happened is there are separate limits now. Let's say this year the limit will be 350 and you get a, a separate limit. Uh, for mistakes made by doctors, a separate limit for mistakes made by other caregivers like nurses or uh, mm -hmm. therapists, and uh, a, a third limit for uh, institutions or facilities. So a person could stack those and get over a million dollars if all three are involved in the negligent conduct. Wow. So, uh, and, and there are similar kinds of uh, limits um, at the federal level and at the, in different states that are different amounts. Um, so the, that's, again, on general damages. So the way I look at how to evaluate the, this kind of case is it's a brain injury. The person's going to require treatment, care and treatment for the rest of their lives or for some long period of their lives. And they're going to have a profound um, impact on their quality of living. So you've got a combination of special damages for future care and uh, general damages for the impact of their quality of living uh, because they got prescribed and not weaned uh, correctly off of some ben benzodiazepine. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Um well, that is good. That's uh, it's obviously a, a you know a, a great incentive to take on these cases now. If those if the limits are going up, right? Um, you know, in the past with that limit at two fifty, insurance companies wouldn't even talk settlement. They mm -hmm. didn't care. So yeah. so you win. You're going to get two fifty. You know that because they they've taken in so much more money than they've ever paid out. They're sitting on billions of dollars, mm -hmm. and they just don't care. Um, if you get an award of $250,000. So it, yeah. it was very tough. Nowadays, uh, I have adjusters speaking to me a lot nicer. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping that things will settle better. And so um, my understanding is you only practice in California, right? There's no other places where you work? Well, the thing is about that, let me make this, this yeah. point clear. I can actually practice anywhere in the country if I have a local attorney to work with. For instance, my first federal jury trial was in um, Iowa, in Fort Dodge, where my father was born, incidentally. Um, that, was quite a, that was quite a trial. Uh, that federal judge <laughs> said some things on the record I've never heard before. But the point being, uh, I'm not licensed in Iowa, but I could go there and do that trial because my cousin happens to be licensed in Iowa and she prohacked me. So if there's somebody with a good case in a different state, um, you know, we can make arrangements to handle that. You know, the brain injury case that I mentioned earlier was a woman from Colorado and she was injured here in California. But her next door neighbor was the lawyer who brought the case. I pro-hacked him in, into California and handled the case, but I handled the case. So, so there's ways around the fact that I'm only licensed in California. 
So if someone's in Texas and they go to a medical malpractice lawyer who's sympathetic and and they say, hey, you know, I know you've probably never heard of this case before, but I know, you know, Hoyt Hart in California, he's done one of these before. Would you consider allowing him to work it with us? There would be a way to get you and your expertise involved. Sure. Or yeah. I, I know uh, attorneys in Texas. Uh, I, I can always find someone to, uh, to uh, join with me. So, okay. So I might tell, I might tell people that they could uh, maybe contact you or shoot you an email, you know, if they think they have a good case somewhere and that, you know, you'll have a think about your resources and see whether you could put something together. Yeah. 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 I'm happy to right. field those cases because okay. there aren't many people out there who will. No. But we'll change that. We'll, we'll, we'll get the word out. We'll do a couple of cases in different places and work with some other lawyers and then they'll, they'll learn about it. I think it's and and you know it's it's so timely because it was only in 2020 when the FDA updated the labels to put this in there and I mean it's there plain as day you know the 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 symptoms of this neurological injury and I think linking that to just negligent prescribing which is against the guidelines I don't know if it'll be that much of a lift I I, I could see it becoming hopefully easier um yeah. once we put all the pieces together. At the end of the day, you're, you you need people to understand accountability, and mm -hmm. that that's what we're trying to do. And we were able to get that in Kathy's case. Um, it was nip and tuck, but we, we managed. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're we're driving the um, uh, the practice into uncharted waters. And, you know, when I spoke to you on the phone, I think it was like a month ago or something, you were talking about how medical malpractice lawyers, you know, you guys are really the check and balance on on um, on the way medicine is practiced. I don't know if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on that, because I really liked what you had to say about it. Well, the, the way the system is set up, um, we are supposed to be the check on medical malpractice because um, – if you don't pay attention to what you're doing as a physician, you're going to injure the patient. And, well, I've got so many patients, you know, one gets injured. You know, that happens. Uh, but if, if that patient's going to sue you and you're going to have to pay money or have your insurance company pay money for it, you, you're going to think twice about it. The problem is uh, with all of the, the um, tort reform, that has been foist upon us over the last 50 years, since the mid-70s. Um, they made it so difficult to prevail against physicians that most lawyers, like Kathy's experience, nobody would take her case. And so there is no accountability. You can, I mean, <laughs> I do a lot of work in Bakersfield and they routinely kill people up there with really stupid mistakes. And you confront them with it and they look at you like, you know, so the, the, the problem is we're supposed to be the check on that bad medicine. If you injure the patient, we're going to come along and hold you accountable for it. But the problem is the system doesn't work well. Judges will fight you. Juries won't like you or your case, and so doctors get away with it. And so the check doesn't work most of the time, or it's not quite most of the time anymore, but some of the time. And that's a hurdle that we face in every case. You know, it's judges who don't understand and don't want to think about the medicine that you present. You know, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia was a complex case, but I had it really simplified. And I had a good judge in that case. And I still had problems uh, with things that they were doing. Half of that case was involved because the doctors didn't speak to each other. And so there was no coordination. And, oh, by the way, they forgot to get consent from the patient for a lot of things they were doing. You know, the intensivists were adding platelets to a patient with, you know, flaming uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And that just it, that makes it worse. And they never bothered to ask the patient. They just did it. So, yeah, we're supposed to be the check on this. And we try to be uh, every chance we get. Mm -hmm. um, it's a challenge. It continues to be a challenge.
And, you know, I, I think the the outcomes, especially if we can link together a couple of these, and if and Kathy's case was in a big institution, so you, you could almost assume that they heard about it and hopefully they will monitor policies and guidelines to make sure that these things are enforced more. I mean, if you can get more of these cases in these different large healthcare systems, they'll start putting out guideline documents to their physicians saying, you know, you can't do this. They'll start modifying the electronic medical record when physicians try and prescribe it to to give them reminders, you know, hey, you need to start, you know, discontinuing this medication or here is an alternative. And so I think all of these little things over time, they really do add up, you know, you know to to substantial change. So. Yeah, I yeah. agree with that. And I, mm -hmm. I think I've heard that in Kathy's case, they did revise the guideline after her case was brought. I, I just read it and it looked the the guideline from a couple months ago and it is it is looking really good. I mean it's exactly what you would want it to be. And this is so, the guideline for the whole health system, which is yeah, which is great. On the other hand, I guess if you ever if, if something like this ever happens with them again, now they're in real trouble because they would have been going against their own policy. So yeah. it's yeah. Well, that what's really good about this with when I see that the guideline's been changed, uh and, and you can see the connection to Kathy's case, then you feel like you have been the check. They talk about You're protracted withdrawal change. in the guideline. I was I was blown away. You know, they, yeah. they listed out with the symptoms. Yeah. I can't yeah. tell you how many arguments I had with defense counsel where I was beating those concepts into his head. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad to see they showed up in the, in the guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Hoyt, you have a really interesting vantage point. I mean, you you deal with um, the accidents that happen, you know, and then people come to you seeking help. What's what's your current perspective? And this is just a general one. What's your current opinion on on the way medicine is practiced in the U.S. today, from from where you sit? Um, <clears throat> okay, that's a big question. Yeah, uh, I think there's a very large percentage of it <clears throat> that is. Um, micromanaged for financial purposes or macromanaged for financial purposes. Mm -hmm. You have groups that employ um, junior doctors and they assign them 20 patients a day uh, so they can run their bill and you get 10 or 15 minutes with that doctor. And I, I don't know how they differentiate one patient from another after they get to 16 or 17 patients. And that's a prescription for trouble. Um, we just got a case where um, a guy had uh, uh, a device placed in his back, a metal brace, and it became infected. And it became painful because it was infected. And the, the um, hospital literally uh, couldn't deal with his screaming in pain. And so they lied to the family and said, your insurance ran out. And they got an ambulance to take him home. He lasted one day at home before he was paramedic to a different hospital and put in intensive care for 10 days. So, you know, there, there's just no accommodation for the reality of, of medicine. And, and, and the practitioners just don't seem to care. Now, I know that's not true across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, what, 20 years ago, I had about 50 doctors as business clients. And that, that's really where a lot of my practice came from. Once they knew I had an interest in malpractice and, and handled that case in San Diego, they would tell me stories. You know, what about this? Uh, you know, here's an incompetent cervix and, and the, the, uh, uh, that this is a birth delivery case and the, the, the patient's uh, OB was lived two blocks from the hospital and the ER doc never bothered to call her at 11 o'clock at night. And the grandma is standing there when the baby delivers itself at six months and, you know, oh. a pound and a half. So <clears throat> it's you, you, we have to make them stop and think about the patient. They have to become more patient centric and less business centric. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with more, more about that. And that was something that I was acutely aware of when I was going through my residency. And I also practiced in some county outpatient clinics in Philadelphia as well. 
And and just like you said said it, it's it's you know there's 20 patients you have to see them in a day, and if if things don't fit neatly into like a little box and it's like oh you know you have this condition and here is the treatment and you know it's fine, yeah. Yeah. then you know it's you do not and have it's the time. So easy to yeah. manage those kind of patients with a prescription pad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that's and that's kind of no why small I think part of of uh, yeah. Kathy's case. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that, 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 that's really well said, you know, when, when you're forced to kind of solve problems, you know, in 15 minute increments, Oh, you know, the guideline says, give this. Okay. That's that. Instead of kind of talking, kind of understanding more, you know, talking a little bit more about the benefits and the risks. I mean, in Kathy's case, she didn't even hear about the risks of dependence or, or anything on the medication. And I think that's you know, so routine, you know, that's just like, oh, just take this. You'll be fine. It's all right. Yeah. It brings up another really good point. And that is informed consent is nowhere in the practice of medicine. No. Yeah. In that heparin-induced thrombocytopenia case, I was able to settle uh, one of the parties for policy limits because he had just come off being chief of staff. And I asked him in his deposition as chief of staff, isn't one of your main objectives to get people to get your staff to document things like informed consent? Yep. Did you do it? No. And that's how that case settled. Yeah. If it's not documented, it didn't happen. You know, that's, yeah. They need to listen to, to the patient. Um, I had a a really interesting case uh, about 20 years ago where uh, a baby had a febrile seizure. And the mom had really good insurance because she worked for a, a Maytag mm-hmm. you know, construction facility. And so with that good insurance, she got a little too much attention. The uh, report of a febrile seizure went right to uh, the neurology department and they put the baby on phenobarbital. And over the course of the first month, the baby started to get Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Skin was sloughing, and and this again a Hispanic family, and the mom knows this is not right, so she instinctively cut the dose in half and started cutting down the dose. But still, the baby was beginning to lose skin. She did an interesting thing. She went to the only physician she knew who was out of network, and that was her gynecologist. She went to that gynecologist and showed the baby, and the guy called the paramedics immediately and said, take this baby over to Children's Hospital right away. And en route to Children's Hospital, the insurance company rerouted the ambulance to uh, a local community hospital where they had the contract. And uh, in the, so the baby ends up not at the place the physician wanted him to go. And as he arrives there, they want to, they determine that he's uh, anemic. So they want to put a, a pick line in order to give him blood products. Mm-hmm. And it took him like three times. And in the course of placing this pick line, now his mom had said, don't give my baby any medicine. No one listened to that. No medicine without my approval because she understood what had happened. So in pu- placing this pick line, they used ketamine, and Versed and Versed and more ketamine. And, and then when they finally got the line placed, the blood had expired. So they had to order more blood. And so the critical care doc signs off an order, a PRN order for Ativan. So he'll lay still for uh, an echocardiogram that they're going to do. So I think I counted seven doses of benzodiazepines on this baby, this six month old baby. Um, and, and he, the, the critical care doc left for the day with an order, a PRN order. If there's any sign of seizure, more out of that. Okay. A complete huge overreaction. So along about eight o'clock at night, what do you suppose happened to this baby? Hmm. He stopped breathing because the respiratory depressant effect of all that benzodiazepine on his little body. And the, uh, the night nurse, somebody in Kathy's position, but not as good as Kathy, looked at him and said, apnea, seizure with apnea, and gave him more out of air. He suffered a, a 
45 minute anoxic episode and was profoundly brain injured. And what a case that was. Um, I mean, they, they, uh, because of her insurance, they had to take care of him, uh, for the whole time. And so, um, I came along about six years after that all happened and uh, chased down enough of the doctors to get them a lifetime settlement. Uh, but what an interesting case that was, getting everybody to understand that what the effect of benzodiazepines is on an infant. Yeah. Yeah, com- compounding multiple analgesic medications together without appropriate monitoring to, to make sure that they maintain a patent airway. I mean, it's and just not protecting his airway. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a million stories like that. Yeah. Sometimes and I, I, w- I wish we had time to hear more. I know I will certainly find time to hear more of them, but boy, it's, it's probably a good time to wrap. We've been going for just under an hour now. So I okay. think um, any, any, any other final thoughts before we close? Don't give up. Because they, uh, the bad side wins if you just give up. You know, fight like Kathy. That means fight like hell. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. So, uh, Hoyt Hart, thank you for coming on. Um, My pleasure. I will reach out to you afterwards to get an email address or contact information that you feel comfortable sharing, and I'll post it in the description of the video for anyone who uh, has cases. Okay. Very good. Look forward to talking to some of your people. Great. Thanks. Thanks again. Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.